right. Welcome to those of you not on spring break, I guess. I think a lot of people are out of town. Um, let's pray before we begin. Um, Father, I thank you so much for um, just the fact that, that we are so equipped by your word. And there's so much in your word that helps us live in this world. Um, and I pray that you would help us uh, again this morning as we come in here and, and try to um, listen and, and um, learn. I pray that you give us humility, Lord. I pray that you would give us um, uh, understanding and wisdom. And uh, would you continue to make us more like your son through this study? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> um, sorry, I gotta figure out the cord to this mic. It's kind of stuck. Um, so we're on class 12 now of biblical sexuality. So you guys are troopers for, you know, sticking with me through, you know, 12 classes now. We, uh, this should be the second to last class. Uh, next week should, or in two weeks, uh, we should be wrapping up. Um, next week uh, is Easter, obviously, and um, Mike has graciously agreed to do kind of a one-off Sunday school talking about the resurrection, uh, more from the standpoint of kind of how we can have confidence in, in uh, the resurrection, and even in you know, conversations with those who may be skeptic. Uh, what are what are ways that we can have more confidence in the the you know, historical fact of the resurrection? So I'm really excited for Mike to share with us next week. Um, forgive me, I I have pollen throat. <laughs> um, pray for my voice this morning as I'm preaching as well. After this, um, I'm thanks for those who have been praying. My my voice definitely feels the strongest that it has. Um, you know, in several days, so I'm super encouraged by that, but definitely want to be able to keep it through for the rest of the morning. So, last time, if you remember, we, uh, we saw that there was this conflict between the, the bride and the groom in Song of Songs, and um, now we see they've come back together. One, um, one person titled their sermon on this section that we're going to look at today. They called it the duet after the fight. Um, and we see that they're very much back together, and it's even more of a celebration of their relationship and of their sexuality. Um, and last week's conflict was seen mainly through the eyes of the bride. Um, and now we see, especially at the beginning of this section, the groom speaks up. Um, and this kind of shows and, and embodies this return to face-to-face. -face. Uh, there's this renewed relationship that they um, are showing in this section. So we're going to look at a, the largest section um, of our whole study, uh, two chapters basically, um, but they're, they're not as long of chapters. So uh, this section begins with the, the groom saying, uh, you are beautiful as Terza, 
my love, lovely as Jerusalem. Terza, at one point, for a short amount of time, was the capital of when the kingdoms divided. Uh, Terza was the capital of the northern part for a short time. Um, and then, of course, Jerusalem. We all know Jerusalem. And um, I think one of the things he's doing with reference to these cities is, is stressing her uniqueness to him. As these were kind of cities that were set apart. Um, but also her beauty. Uh, Terza is from the Hebrew word that means pleasing. And then um, Jerusalem was just widely known as a very beautiful city in that day and still is today. He says, awesome as an army with banners. And that word awesome uh, will, will be important here. He says, turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. We see that there's this new depth to their relationship after the conflict they went through um, in the earlier chapters. Um, she is even more beautiful to him now. She is also awe-inspiring, which is something he hasn't talked about yet. Um, you know, earlier her gaze towards him was eloquent, like unthreatening doves. And now she has this mysterious power over him um, in a healthy way. Uh, in other words, his respect for her has, has grown. And often, you know, obviously conflict in a marriage, but a conflict in any relationship, they're, they're, if, it, if, if you work through it well, can deepen your respect for each other. And we're seeing that here. So he continues in verse 5, Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from the washing. All of them bear twins. Not one among them has lost its young. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. This is sort of similar to an earlier description of her he had given. Um, but he leaves out the lips. He leaves out her breasts here. It's maybe showing that he's not just interested in reconciling so that they can you know, be together physically again, but he wants her as a person. And he says, behind your veil, this is maybe saying you're as lovely as you were on your wedding day. And then he goes on in verse 8, There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one. This is potentially a jab at Solomon. We talked at the beginning that um, I, at least, and the people that I've trusted in, in reading that um, don't really believe in that this was written by Solomon. Um, and this could be a jab at Solomon. Solomon obviously had way more um, queens and concubines than that. And, uh, you know, it's his way of saying he's a one-woman man. Um, it's just kind of this subtle affirmation of, you know, one man, one woman for marriage, potentially, you know, another passage that speaks um, against polygamy. <clears throat> and we saw that in 1 Corinthians 7 uh, last week. The only one of her mother, verse 9, pure to her who bore her. The young woman saw her and called her blessed. The queens and concubines also, and they praised her. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? The man is still very much in love with her after the fight and maybe even more. And then she chimes in. I went down to the nut orchard. That could, there could be double entendre here, um, sexual innuendo. To look at the blossoms of the valley to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. So she's going to check in and see if their love is restored. A garden uh, throughout Song of Solomon has had this sense, especially a garden in bloom, is this sense of, okay, we are ready for love. Um, 
but it's a little bit different description of a garden, so that's why they think this is her talking um, about him. And pomegranates here, um, pomegranates were often a metaphor for fruitfulness, fertility, um, and you know, bearing children. If you think about pomegranates and uh, you open them up, and I don't know what you call them, do you call them seeds? There's just a bunch of little pieces of fruit in a pomegranate, and it's just this metaphor for fruitfulness. <clears throat> so verse 12, before I was aware, my desire set me among the chariots of my kinsmen, a prince. This is probably one of the hardest verses in uh, Song of Solomon to translate in the Hebrew, but it most likely means that the discovery, when she you know, went and checked out the garden, the discovery that the garden is in bloom leaves her feeling suddenly caught up with overwhelming joy as if riding in a state of procession with nobility. She's, she's full of joy that they are ready to come back together. Then the others say, return, O Shulamite. Um, she is most likely from, she's most likely that's probably her background. She's a Shulamite. Return, return, O Shulamite. Return, return, that we may look upon you. And he says, why should you look upon the Shulamite? It sounds like a rebuke. A better rendering of why is probably how. Oh, how should you look upon the Shulamite as, as upon a dance before two armies? This is a complicated verse as well. But by comparing her to the dancing women who celebrated in a military victory in ancient Israel, um, the young husband declares that she is the center of his attention. You know, the conflict is over, two enemies are reconciled, and all eyes are on the victory dance. So he starts to describe her again. Um, now, um, oh, I didn't go to the next, sorry. So I was just reading the top section. Why should you look upon the Shulamite as, a, as upon a dance before two armies? And now um, in uh, chapter 7 and going on, <clears throat> he starts to describe her again. But now in the most detail. This is the most detail that he will get into just describing her and, and her body. Um, and, and it's interesting that it's after this you know, fight that they had. And he starts with her feet this time instead of starting with her head. Um, and it's rare for poems like this in that day to start with the feet. Um, and it's potentially a metaphor for how exalted she is in his eyes in this moment. You know, she's so high and lifted up in his heart and his eyes that he has to start with the feet. Um, and this is, a, this is a more erotic section <clears throat> in chapter 7. So, how beautiful are your feet in sandals? That's kind of a description of nobility. Um, most women in that day were not wealthy enough to have sandals. Um, but it could have been even metaphorical, like she, she's like nobility to him. And notice, um, as we continue going, if he describes any other items of clothing. Uh, he probably doesn't. Oh, noble daughter, your rounded thighs. <clears throat> um, this is potentially talking about her butt, um, is what commentators say. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. That's talking about God. Um, <clears throat> your, your navel is a rounded bowl. Sorry, my notes. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. <clears throat> it's probably a discreet reference to her genital area more than the navel, as we'd expect the navel to come after the belly. Um, and there's sort of this fertility image here, um, especially this bowl of wine. Um, 
And then he says, your belly is a heap of wheat. Isn't that romantic? Um, again, this is fertility language mostly. Um, there's, she's communicating, or he's communicating an openness to the gift of children, which is something she had earlier um, expressed interest in. And so there's even this kind of connection there of he's you know, communicating openness to the gift of children. But also in that day, <clears throat> they did, they found, you know, bigger bellies more attractive. That was just part of the day. And it's encircled with lilies, and, and the lilies is more of a nod of um, sexual attraction. Her two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. That verse was also in chapter 4. It's a picture of gentleness and fertility. <coughs> so sorry. Um, but... We'll see as we continue. He's not, this, is, this can kind of seem like, you know, he's objectifying her. Um, but it's not just that, because now he goes to her head and her neck. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bath-Rabim. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. He's kind of saying throughout this whole thing, your curves are in all the right places. Your head crowns you like Carmel. Okay, so she's got these sandals on her feet, which were... Um, in his eyes, you know, like nobility. There's this crown on her head. So she's like uh, nobility to him. And earlier she had said, said something similar in chapter 4. So it's just this, their royalty to each other. And your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. How beautiful and pleasant are you, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree and your breasts are like its clusters. So he doesn't want to describe, now after this point, he doesn't want to describe at a distance anymore. He can't take it anymore. Um, and so verse 8, I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine and the scent of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. And we'll see now that the man will not be disappointed. She is so eager to be with him that she actually finishes his sentence here. Um, she adds her harmony to his melody. And she clearly is part of this, this kiss that he's expressing. So she says, it goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloved's. Okay, this is more than just physical coming together. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. So this is a little bit language than what she's used two other times in the passage. I'm my beloved's, and my beloved's is mine. His desire is for me. What does that language sound like? It sounds like Genesis, right? where um, God talks about after the curse comes, um, you know, he says the woman's desire will be for the husband. And it's sort of this sense of there's going to be conflict between men and women. Um, and so there's almost this like reversal of Genesis 3.16 that is promised here. That when a, a marriage is, um, you know, a, done in a way that the couple is for each other, the couple is, has a really strong relationship, you can almost experience a reversal of the curse in Genesis 3.16. Um, and you see each is for the other here. That's the Ephesians 5 picture of marriage. So now that their relationship is restored, wait, did I? Okay, it is up there. Now that their relationship is restored, they seek opportunities to enjoy that relationship in two places. So the rest of uh, chapter 7, verse 11 through 13, they want to enjoy their relationship in the countryside. And then um, 
and then they'll want to enjoy it together in the city. So we'll see that in the rest of the verses. So verse 11, Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the great blossoms have opened and are in bloom. There I will give you my love. More on that phrase in a minute. But remember that phrase. The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O oh my beloved. Now in um, chapter 8, it switches uh, from the countryside to the city. There's, there's a more public aspect to the relationship here. They were alone together in the countryside. She says in 8 verse 1, Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I found you outside, I would kiss you, and none would despise me. So what is going on there? Um, in that day, interestingly, it was okay for siblings uh, and close of kin, like cousins maybe. There's even an example of this in, I think, Genesis, where in public they were allowed to show a you know, physical affection towards each other. Um, even like kiss, even if it wasn't in a romantic way. And, um, but not marrieds. Uh, in, that, in that culture, it was very discouraged for a married couple to show any public display of affection. And so you see here, she's wishing now that they're back in town that he was uh, her brother because she wants to um, you know, show affection to him. Verse 2, I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, <clears throat> she who used to teach me. And so we see again, we had seen this earlier in, the rela- in, in Song of Songs, this desire to bring him to her house. And this is for public approval of the relationship. Um, you know, but earlier she wished to bring him, and now notice um, how she brings him unhindered. That's just probably an example that they, they are married now. I would give you my spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. And so after this public approval of their love, uh, they wanna, she wants to have more uh, physical, sexual love. Um, there's newness as well to um, this expression. It's spiced wine now, and it's the juice of the pomegranate. So things are heating up with them. Um, but also, again, there is this fertility implied by the pomegranate. Uh, verse 3, his left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. Uh, This has been her desire from the beginning. She said that phrase at least one or two times. Uh, She wants to be totally embraced by him. Um, She's not shy about saying she wants him as bad as he wants her. You know, earlier she had said in in 7 verse 12, I will give you my love. And, And I said this, I think, last week a little bit, but Song of Songs does a great job of showing that the gift of sex is as much for the woman as it is the man. Um, and that day, that, that was countercultural for that day, and often, you know, um, even in the church sometimes, in, in, the, in the history of the church, it has, you know, been a little bit more emphasized as something for the man, um, and that's just not true. Verse 4, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. So she said this several times as well throughout Song of Songs. Oh, oh, no, it's there. Um, this may have something to do with how she wanted public approval. Um, she's maybe saying to the daughters this time um, that love cannot be celebrated. A love that cannot be celebrated by the wider uh, society is a love that is incomplete and frustrating. So she's you know, kind of maybe saying that uh, you know, any love 
that becomes marriage needs to be approved uh, by your you know, closest sphere of influence. So that's um, chapter 6, verse 4, actually, through 8, verse 4. Um, next week, we'll, or in two weeks, we will finish um, chapter 8, which is the last chapter of Song of Songs, and it talks about the importance of um, telling the next generation um, a biblical view of sex. And we'll talk about that some. But um, I'm going to talk now, as this, this uh, section has probably celebrated the, the, the sexual love between the two the most of any section, um, I kind of want to use this section as a launching um, to, to me kind of giving a summary of what we've, we've talked about in terms of biblical sexuality and, and kind of make my humble attempt at kind of a summary of kind of how to think about what is biblical sexuality, how should we understand it. But before I transition to that, I, you know, I pause for any questions or comments on this section of Song of Songs that we've just done. Any, anyone want a question or comment? Okay. All right. So if you remember in the first class, and if I, which I hope to do maybe in a couple years to, to revisit this, a class like this, I think these are good truths for us and <clears throat> to come back to. I think if I did it again, I might, this, I'm going to talk about three truths today. In the first class, I talked about three lies. Um, but maybe it could be good now that we've kind of talked through a lot of things, we can kind of all summarize together. But I talked about um, the three lies that our culture teaches us about sex. Does anyone remember the first lie? Sex is what? Everything, yes. Um, so, you know, sex in our culture is worshipped. Um, ours is a hypersexualized age. You know, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. I mean, it, it really is something that um, you're not really living until you, you are doing this. And, and I, if you remember the Woody Allen quote, I don't know what the question is, but sex is definitely the answer. Um, was, is kind of, you know, captures some of that idea. But what's, uh, what's the second lie that we talked about a couple months back? Sex is everything, but another lie, kind of at the same time, the other side of the coin is sex is, is nothing. Um, there's a way in which this is taught as well, um, in which it's, there's nothing significant really going on between you in, in when you're engaged in sex. You know, there's a lot of different ways we talked about that. Um, you know, one of the things I mentioned was, you know, this study that was done of, you know, college students who were, um, you know, engaging in sexual activity, that the language in the 60s was making love. That's how they'd talk about it, so a more relational language. And then in the 80s, the common language to talk about it was having sex, which, you know, was, um, you know, a little less relationally describing it. Uh, but nowadays, a common language for it is just hooking up. It's kind of like, plugging in, you know, a computer to, to the wall. It's just this, there's nothing significant really about it. It's just hooking up. And, uh, you know, I gave an illustration from um, the TV show Friends where they, you know, this, this exchange between two where they just talked about them being friends with benefits is just like, it's recreational. They're, them having sex is, it's recreational. It's like 
playing racquetball together. It's, so it's nothing. Um, and, and I showed ways that the Bible says the opposite, and we'll get into some of those in a minute. And then um, the last one was that sex is the way to freedom. That's the other lie. Ours is an age of authenticity. The only way to become authentic is to take my feelings, especially my sexual feelings, and act on them. Um, and this mindset becomes an idol. So those are the three lies. Um, you know, there's more that we could say, but that is, I think, a decent summary. And so I want to talk about three truths in response to that. That is hopeful, hopefully a helpful way to kind of condense um, a lot of what the Bible says about sex. And I present these humbly. I'm still kind of stewing on them, if I'm honest. I'm still working through them. Um, and so view this as sort of my towards a biblical theology of sex. I'm, I'm still wanting to sharpen this, and I appreciate people even already through this class who have helped me you know, think through biblical sexuality even more. I, I, need, I need your help in this as well. So three truths. Instead of sex being everything, I'll say that the Bible teaches that sex is heavenly. Um, and I'll explain that in a minute. Instead of sex being nothing, I'd say the Bible teaches that sex is covenantal. Instead of sex being the way to freedom, I would say that the Bible teaches that sex is sacrificial. So, it's heavenly, it's covenantal, it's sacrificial. Well, let's start with sex is heavenly. This is a bit ironic of a, a term because um, as Jesus teaches in the Gospels, there's, there's probably no, not going to be any sex between you know, a husband and wife because there's no marriage in the new heavens. I, I guess I can't say that for sure, but that, that seems to be what Jesus teaches in the Gospels. And so to call it heavenly um, can be a little ironic, but what I mean um, is that it's pleasurable and that it's spiritual. And so let me kind of explain those things. Sex is heavenly in that it's pleasurable. Obviously, the Song of Songs um, it has this all over it. You know, that when they are first consummating their relationship, the, the others chime in and say, eat friends, drink, and be drunk with love. That word drunk is just this, you know, be, have, have pleasure in it. And then, um, you know, we just read today where he's talking about her and, and, and enjoying her body, that it would be like the vine and that her mouth would be like the best wine, that it would be enjoy, enjoyable. And then she says something similar in chapter 1. Let him kiss me with the kisses, plural. So that's, that, means, that shows it's a more sexual way of talking about kisses. For your love is better than wine. And it's, it's all of his love, but, but not, not less than his, uh, you know, their physical. And of course, Proverbs, I've said this often, it instructs a man to be intoxicated with his wife's breasts, intoxicated, um, and to, to have delight. Um... And then, you know, I think about 1 Corinthians that we talked about last week. You know, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul tells the Corinthians to flee sexual immorality. And, you know, part of that can be um, fleeing it by um, having Jesus help you with your temptation, finding more satisfaction in Christ. But Paul, um, you know, as we saw last week, some of the Corinthians, to flee, they thought, okay, we just need to have a very negative view of sex and not even do it in our marriage. And um, Paul shows that one way to flee sexual morality is to 
not kill that desire, but, but re-channel that desire in the pro- appropriate context in your marriage. And so I think there's even this subtle sense of Paul affirming the, the desires that can come in us uh, to be intimate with someone. The longing for the pleasure of sex isn't bad. Um, it just needs to be expressed in the right context. Um, I, I heard a professor talk about once how in the animal world, um, and I don't know if this is exactly true, but he was saying that the, typically in the animal world, the, the female, when they mate, the female, there's no pleasure in it for the female um, in the animal world. Um, there's just a little bit for the male. And so even just the fact that God has made sex enjoyable for women um, is a really neat gift that we see a lot in Song of Songs. So it's, it's heavenly. It's pleasurable. It feels really good. Um, but it's also spiritual. It's, it's part of what I mean by it being heavenly. And there's two ways I want to talk about it being spiritual. Um, we image God in our sexuality, um, but it's also a foretaste of heaven. So we image God. We image God in two ways in our um, married sexuality. We image kind of God's being as a trinity, and we also image God's love towards us. And um, this is one of the areas that I'm still kind of chewing on and learning, and, and I've, um, you know, this guy, Jonathan Grant, gets into this some in his book. But um, one of the ways to describe the, the love of God, God is love, and he's a trinity, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One of the ancient early church's ways of describing the life of the trinity is this word perichoresis. Has anyone ever heard of the word perichoresis before? Um, Okay, so it was this kind of early church way of describing this dyna- the dynamic in which each Trinitarian person relates to the other in complete openness, trust, um, and, and love. There's, there's this intimate relationship in the, twin, in the Trinity. God is love. And uh, we see some of that you know, in the Gospels, especially between the Father and the Son in John 17, Jesus is talking about the love between the Father and Son, but then in John 17, he also asks that we would get invited into that love. And 2 Peter 3 also, or sorry, 2 Peter 1 also talks about, you know, that God would, would you know, bring us up into the, this perichoresis love of the Trinity. And so Jonathan Grant, one of the ways he's quoting someone here, He says, our sexuality enables us to participate now in the aesthetic realities of heaven. Our experience of romantic love, sexual desire, and all forms of beauty is a testimony to our ultimate desire for God. In these moments, we experience a sort of momentarily redeemed nature when we feel that we are created to experience ecstatic intimacy with God and others. In essence, we taste our origins and and our future destiny. Sex and spirituality are intricately interwoven because each reflects and leads us toward the other. Sexual intimacy within marriage, then, is a visible sacrament or icon that participates in and reveals the unseen God. And he says earlier that sex within marriage, in in sex within marriage, we express something essential about God's own relationship within the Trinity, as well as we point to the age when we will participate in these relationships directly. Um... And so there's this sense that which we, we, we image just the, the intimate love between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit when we engage in this intimate love between a husband and, and wife. Um, 
But we also don't just image God's love for himself, but also God's love for us. The primary descriptor of God's relationship with his people in the Bible is marriage. You know, um, God, it says that in Isaiah, God is our husband. Think about in the prophets, when God is rebuking um, his people for going after idols, the language he uses is adultery. Uh, and, and you could say that that's somewhat sexual language, um, to call it adultery. And so that implies that, you know, our, our love rightly ordered towards God, that there's this deep intimacy, this marital covenant love that God, you know, has designed to have with us. <clears throat> and that, you know, especially even the sexual one flesh part of the marriage can be a picture of that. Um, Ezekiel 16, I'm not going to put up the whole passage, it's pretty long, but you, you, there's this portion in Ezekiel where God is kind of, kind of prophesying about the people of Israel, and um, there's this part where he's kind of showing how God is going to bring them back to himself. He had just described them as this baby, kind of wa- you know, wailing in, in, in the field, that is found wailing in the field. <clears throat> But then it goes on and, and says, And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown. He's talking about his people here. You're at the age for love. You're at the age for love. This is, this is, there's a, a little bit of sexual undertones to, to how God is describing his relationship with his people. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God. And you became mine. I dressed you with fine linen and covered you with silk, and I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and chain on your neck, and I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Uh, and so you see kind of this you know, real rich uh, relationship that God longs for with his people. And when Paul speaks of the one fleshness, of the sexual relationship between the man and the woman in, in Ephesians 5, right after he says the one flesh part, um, you know, that's where he then goes into. And this, this is a picture, this is a mysterious picture of Christ's relationship with the church. And so, um, <clears throat> as one uh, different author says, human erotic sexual desire is a picture of God's love and delight in us. Um, and and it's, that was a very different way to think about it for me. I had never really thought like that before. I'm still chewing on it, but I, I think there's, there seems to be something to that. Um, you know, the Lord's Supper, when we, we take of the, the bread and the wine, uh, one book I've read on the Lord's Supper describes it, it's like a kiss from God. It's, it's like this physical way of God saying, I love you. You are mine. So um, it's spiritual. It's, it's heavenly. It's pleasurable. It's spiritual because one way is that we image God, but it's also a foretaste of heaven. Um, you know, Revelation 19, what is, there? What is that? It's a, it's a wedding supper. Um, and, you know, especially weddings in the ancient world, and especially in the Israelite world, there was these, all these common customs, and it ended with this, you know, celebration of the, the man and woman going to consummate their, their marriage. We see that even in Song of Songs. And, and so... Um, you know, Jonathan Grant, he says it in Revelation 19 where there's this wedding celebration that there has to at least be implied, you know, especially the, the first readers would have at least thought of 
that part of the wedding celebration where there was this, this, this excitement of sending the, the couple off to, to consummate their marriage. And so there's this, <clears throat> um, you know, Jonathan Granny says, sexual intimacy in marriage gives us something like a momentary glimpse of our future ecstasy. So any, you know, enjoyment of a, a husband and wife, uh, one of the things that's meant to do for us is to give us this um, longing for heaven. Um, where it's, if, if, if that is uh, as wonderful as it can be in an, in an experience, how much more wonderful must heaven be? So it's, it's meant to, to give us a taste of heaven. So that's what I mean by heavenly. Um, but sex is also covenantal. It's, it's marital. And, and we've already established earlier in this class that you know, the Bible, of course, calls marriage as between one man and one woman. So how is it covenantal? It's covenantal in that it's relational and that it's permanent. Um, <clears throat> so, um, so relational. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. So leave first. Uh, that's a word that's used elsewhere in the Bible. Um, it's, it's translated forsake sometimes, like forsaking God. So the, the husband must leave. He must... His loyalty must now shift primarily to his wife and hold fast and cleave to his wife. That word hold fast is a powerful word. It's, it's covenantal language that is used elsewhere to talk about our relationship with God. And then what comes after that? You first have leave, you have cleave, and then there's one flesh. The order is very important. All right, so we see that sex is, is a, you know, a, a, and a outward expression of an inward reality. Um, what is the Bible's, at least the Old Testament's, what is one of the main ways that the Old Testament describes a sexual act between a man and a woman? Does anyone know? There, I kind of left you a hint there. Um, yes, so it says, Genesis 4, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and um, Hannah they rose early in the morning, worshiped before the Lord, then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. It's a very interesting way for the Bible to talk about sex. It's, it's more than just this physical exchange. It's, it's knowing the person. Um, that's, a, that's something I want to study more, is, the, is passages like that. I, I didn't get a chance to do that this week. Um, and then you think of the seventh commandment. You know, do not commit adultery. Uh, this is to be between, you're supposed to protect your your sexual life between each other. Scotty Smith, he says that, um, you know, sex between a husband and wife is, it's more than genitalia on genitalia. It's heart on heart. Uh, I, I've said this before, that we are the only creatures who make love face to face. Um, there's just this relational part that God wants to be a part of it. One of my professors, he said, the best sex manual is your marriage vows. Uh, because it, it's, it's basically saying your marriage vows all over again. Um, he, my professor would say, he would, he would encourage us to ask in our marriages, as you know, maybe we're approaching a moment of intimacy, am I saying something with my body that I've been saying with my life? <clears throat> Unfortunately, I've got to keep going here. Um, you know, they talk about touching the soul before touching the body. I said it last week, and, and sometimes... Um, you know, someone in a marriage can use, use the spouse to cherish, cherish sex versus using sex to cherish the spouse. And Song of Songs kind of talks about 
Um, sexual intimacy, cultivating emotional connection. And then it's permanent. Um, we, I, I, you'll have to refer back to my first lesson on how that passage, the word joined there is a very powerful word. It's talking about what happens physically between a, a couple who has sex, whether they're married or not, they're joined. It's like the word, same word for glue. Um, all right, and so it's sacrificial as well. So it's heavenly, it's covenantal, and then finally sex is sacrificial. Um, we talked about this. So there's two ways, it's two things I want to talk about. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 7, just refer back to last week. We talked about how sex is about pleasing the other just as much about yourself. Instead of thinking of sex as something to have, it's better to think of something to give or to share. But then procreation. That's also a really important thing that we need to include in any discussion of biblical sex is that um, procreation is, is a very important part um, Malachi 2, it shows that one of the purposes of marriage is to have children. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And, and what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in the Spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Remember, it's talking about the purpose of marriage here, not necessarily about the purpose of sex. But um, we see throughout the Song of Songs, as I even mentioned today, that, there's, there's, that includes this anticipation of children when it's talking about their um, sexual union. And, you know, historically throughout the church, this has often been something that has been very prominent in the view of sex. Um, you know, Catholics, obviously, they argue that while pleasure and intimacy is a part of and the purpose of sex, it can never be divorced from the procreative purpose. Um, and so that's something that the Catholic Church uh, very much teaches. And so they're obviously against contraceptives of any kind. And, and, and someone in our church helped me remember and even see that up until the 1930s, the Reformed world was, was very much on board with that. They, were, they deemed contraceptives as immoral up until the 1930s. And, and I think that's just helpful perspective, especially even for, as we think about last week, talking about couples who can get in arguments over sex, even sexual frequency. That's one of the natural deterrents, uh, you know, for one of the spouses can be, you know, the fact that this can lead to a birth. And, and are we in a place where we can really steward and, and be good stewards of, of having another child in our home? And, um, but yeah, since the 1930s, more thought was put into to all of this. And of course, um, when I say contraceptives, I'm assuming they're non-abortive contraceptives. There are some contraceptives that, you know, it's... It, it's pretty clear that there's some sort of abortion going on, and, but there's ways to do it where it's non-abortive. And, um, you know, in, kind of widely in, in Christian circles, they're, they're deemed as biblically acceptable um, in the right, if they're used in the right, for the right reasons. Uh, there's, there's debate on that still, though. There's not complete agreement. Um, I think there's even people at our church who, who would disagree with that, and, and that's okay. There's, there's still a lot of thought. I, I wasn't able to find a ton of resources on kind of a, a really solid biblical understanding of contraceptives. Um, it's something I'm still looking into. But, um, you know, I've found enough to, to sh that show that there is a strong biblical case for them if used for the right purpose and in the right way. So that's all I've got. I'm over to our time. 
Again, next week, we're going to do a one-off class on the resurrection. Mike's going to teach us, and then we'll come back for our last class on um, teaching the next generation about sex. Any final comments or thoughts as I finish? There was a lot there. I'm fine to take another minute or two for any comments or questions. No. All right. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and, and just how much your word teaches us about who you are and who we are and, and what uh, deep level of relationship you long to have with us, Lord. And so I pray that, um, that you would help, con- help us, Lord, with that. Continue to cultivate a, a strong affection for you in our lives that uh, moves its way into all of our spheres of life, that um, we can glorify and enjoy you forever, that we can live out of our chief end, and that that, that would impact our marriages, our families, our friendships, our work life, our life in our neighborhoods, and in many other ways. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.